we do praise you. Oh, holy God, blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who from all eternity, all you three persons have been equal in power and glory and majesty. And all three of you, O oh Lord God, have participated in our salvation, the Father electing and the Son accomplishing that electing grace and the Holy Spirit applying it. So we do magnify who you are, O oh Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And O oh Spirit, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of the scriptures that you inspired. And for your glory of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Well, turn with me to John chapter 8. As we're going through the Gospel of John, for the sake of time, I will not read verses. We're going to look at verses 12 through verses 30 this evening. Uh, since we go Siri Adam, I, I'm not going to read the whole uh, area uh, of this text. But just remember, this is what Jesus is saying here comes on the heels of the confrontation he had with the Pharisees and the scribes who thought they were going to get Jesus finally and put him in a trap. So they brought a woman they said they caught in adultery they wanted to know, Moses commanded that you stone him to death. They thought they had him, and they will soon find out you can't outthink God. And um, Jesus is better at applying the Mosaic law than they were. And he basically embarrasses them, and they all leave. And um, so, but they're still around. And so what we're, what he's going to be talking to them or the same people who just got embarrassed by him. And so if you'll notice here in verse 12, Jesus spoke to them, that's the scribes and the Pharisees, I am the light of the world and he who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now this is one of the, the great seven I am's that we find in the scriptures. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. This is a magnificent truth that Jesus expresses. Um, several years ago, when Jeff Donnan, who started uh, Reformation Christian Ministries, got back in contact with me, he wanted me to help him in uh, these these Bible courses, he said, John, I'm working on a course called Light Conquers Darkness. Can you help me? And so this is how it all started with them. And just as a quick aside, let, let me know, God is still doing things we don't know fully about. Over 10,000 people a month come to our online website now. And, and some are registering, others we don't know exactly all that they do. We know they are doing something. So we're just trusting that the Lord uh, says, my word never returns void. So, um, yeah, that God, the, the theme of light is a major theme in the scriptures. 
And after all, 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. Now, if you'll notice here, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, this, this whole idea of darkness and light is a two of the major contrasts in all of the word of God. And Paul recounts to King Agrippa in Acts 26 of his conversion experience uh, there on the road to Damascus. And it's interesting what Jesus, this great persecutor of the church, Jesus encounters, blinds him. He's on the ground and Jesus speaks to him. And this great persecutor, he says, you're going to be my apostle to the Gentile world. And it's interesting what Jesus said, Paul is recounting in Acts 26, because he says in Acts 26, 18, he says, these Gentiles to whom I am sending you, and here's what Jesus said to him, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance of them who are sanctified by faith in me. So the whole idea when God goes to save people, he saves them out of darkness, transfers them to light. We're told in First uh, Peter 2, verse um, 9, Peter says about Christ, he says, and referring to us as, uh, as his people, he says, you are a, a holy people, a royal priesthood, a people chosen uh, for my sake. And then we're told, he says, that we should show forth the, the praises of God, of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's what happens. And then we're told uh, what Jesus over there, and uh, if you want to turn to Matthew 4, when Jesus began his ministry, he began his ministry in the region of in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles. And over there in, in Matthew 4, beginning at uh, verse 14, when he went to that region, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what does it mean when Jesus said, I am the light of the world? Well, it alludes to what John says as he opens up his gospel account. If you want to just turn over a few chapters back to John 1 
If you look at John 1, verses 4 and 5, you'll see that talking about this, this word, he was, that was the creator of the world, it says, in him, verse 4, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So now when we, when we see how the scripture uses light throughout the Old and New Testament, what we're going to see that the main emphasis is upon spiritual light as opposed to spiritual darkness. Jesus as the light of the world means that he is the means of salvation to deliver people who are in their bondage to sin, who are walking in darkness, and in only in him will they have the light of life. Now remember again, the scripture, when it talks about light, when it says in 1 John 1, 5, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, it means that it's talking about the holiness of God, his perfection in his entirety can be summarized as being light. No darkness, no sin, meaning there is no sin with the holy God. Now, as we, as we look at, at verse 12 there in John uh, 8, he says, he who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, what does it mean to walk in the darkness? What's it, he's speaking to him spiritually. If you're walking in the darkness, you, uh, you stumble. You don't know where you're going. Now, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever been, is it, have you ever been in total pitch darkness? Okay. When I was a youth in Wisconsin, I was in total, I was sleeping in my grandparents' living room. Needed to go up to go to the bathroom. I must have been 13. I thought I knew where I was going. I soon found out I was completely disoriented and it was un unnerving. And when I realized I did not know where I was going, I began to start screaming, <laughs> help, help, I need help. Because if you're in the darkness and, and total darkness, you don't know where you're going and you stumble. And Jesus talks about that elsewhere. And remember, in terms of spiritual darkness over against spiritual light, remember what Psalm 119, 105 says? It says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. God's word gives direction. If you're walking in darkness, and walking in the scripture, by the way, is a term that's used very frequently in the scriptures, and it basically refers to a lifestyle. That's what it means. So to walk in light is to mean to have walking in conformity to the word of God, and to walk in darkness is to be spiritually blind. And so to be in sin as an unbeliever, is to be in bondage to sin. It is to walk in the darkness. That is, 
They are, uh, they cannot help but sin and they are influenced by the powers of darkness. You know, Satan's realm is viewed in the scripture as a realm of darkness. Uh, Jess has been preaching on the parables and one of the parables that he's preached on talks about what hell is. There are a lot of various definitions of hell as a place where the worm never dies, where the uh, fire is never quenched, uh, where there's gnashing of teeth and it says, Jesus says they will be cast into the outer darkness. And so it's it's a realm of sin, a realm of depravity. And so to be influenced by the powers of darkness, remember when, when Jesus was betrayed and his hour had finally arrived to be delivered up. Remember he had that, uh, he was arrested by officers from the Sanhedrin. And remember what Jesus said. He said, this is your hour, the power of darkness. That's what he said. And so this imagery to walk in sin, to walk in darkness is to be an unbeliever, to be dominated by one's sin and to be influenced by the devil himself. So when we see when it says in John 1, 4, and 5 that Jesus basically is living out um, his encounter with the Pharisees and scribes is living out what he said, that he was the light and the light was the light of men, but they did not comprehend it. It says he came to his own there in John 1 and they did not receive him. So Jesus as the, um, as the Lord, as the uh, Lord of light, he says, if you, follow, if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. If you follow me, and we're going to see what that means, if you believe in me, you will have the light of life and you will not be in darkness any longer. So as the light of the world, he is the only source of salvation for men to be, liver, to be delivered out of their miserable state. And that's why Colossians talks about that we are transferred out of darkness into the realm of light of his dear son. Now, in verse 13 of John 8, the, the Pharisees and the scribes are saying, Jesus, you're bearing testimony by yourself. And your testimony cannot be true. We just don't accept your testimony, Jesus. And in verse 14, you see there, Jesus answers them by saying, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. And so what Jesus is saying here is, you're constantly judging me trying to trap me with the law of God and you're always very critical of me and Jesus says, you're judging me but you don't have the proper knowledge to be judging me. I bear testimony to myself 
But I'm not the only one who's bearing testimony about who I am. My Father in heaven bears testimony who sent me. So he says, if, if I, there in verse 16, look at verse 16. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. Now look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus said, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who bears witness of myself and the father who sent me bears witness of me. Now remember last week we said the reason that Jesus did not condemn the woman brought to him in adultery is because the prosecution left and no one was willing to cast the first stone, which is what the Old Testament law demanded. And because if they did, they would be subject themselves to the penalty of the law. And so when they leave, he, de- he can't judicially condemn her, though he knew she was guilty, but that's, that's why he said, go and sin no more. But Jesus says, acknowledging in your law, you got to have two witnesses. Well, guess what? I have two witnesses. Me and my father are the two witnesses of who I am. But you can't accept that. You're not able to accept it, in fact. And so what we see here is that Jesus is saying, for example, in the um, verse 19, it says, they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Now this is a, basically, it was a very condescending attitude that they had. Remember, he kept saying, my father, I've come from my father, and they still didn't understand uh, because they said, well, we know, your, we know your mother, we know Joseph, and we know your brothers and sisters. You're from Galilee, and we know no, nothing good comes from Galilee. They still didn't grasp because they weren't able. Now, what, we're going to see, why were they not able to grasp? Because they were not of God's elect. It was not granted to them, as we're going to see in John 6, to come to Jesus. Now, the Pharisees here and the scribes were engaged in the most heinous sin, one of the most heinous sins that could ever be committed. They were hardening their own heart against Jesus. And in hardening your heart against Jesus, you're hardening your heart against the Father. And so, and when you harden your heart, what that does, it leads to total blindness and total ignorance. It leads to total inability to comprehend the things of God. Now, here were the experts of the law. The scribes were the experts of the law. The Pharisees were those who enforced the law. But they didn't understand it. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus 
recognizing you had to be a prophet because nobody could do the, the things that you do unless he's a prophet from God. And then Jesus says to Nicodemus, you got to be born again, Nicodemus. Well, how can I be born again? How can I enter my mother's womb a second time? Nicodemus, you don't understand. You got to be born of the water of the spirit. And, he, and, and then he says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law. Don't you know this? Nicodemus, don't you know this? In other words, you should have known this, Nicodemus. Now, we've said when we preached on John 3, there's every evidence in, in Scripture that Nicodemus became a true believer later on. But he, he still didn't understand. Now, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Now, we're talking about this, what it means to harden your heart and how dangerous it is to do that. Over here in Hebrews 3, starting at verse 7, which is really recounting Psalm 95, which goes back to Exodus. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. And I swore in my wrath they shall never enter my rest. So their great sin is God did all these miracles. The first miracle, he led them across the Red Sea. When they were hungry, he fed them manna from heaven. When they were thirsty, he split the rock open and gave them drink. When they said, we want meat, he says, all right, he sends them quail. I mean, God took care of them in the wilderness. And what did they do? They hardened their heart. They, had, they would not believe in him. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, most of those who came out of Egypt fell and never entered the promised land, meaning most perished in their sins forever. Now, when it says this idea of hardening his heart, I want us to look at several passages in Exodus, and there's a reason why we're doing this, because it, because it fits in extremely well with Jesus' encounter with the scribes and Pharisees. So I want you to turn over to the book of Exodus. We're going to start at Exodus, look at just a couple passages. Exodus 4.21. Now this is when God, Moses, encounters the living God in the burning bush. And God informs him, I'm going to deliver my people now after 400 years, and you're going to be the man through whom I'm going to do it. Now, he says in verse 21 of Exodus 4, uh, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, 
See that ye perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I will put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, if you ever encounter that passage for the first time and you don't know the rest of scripture, you're going to be scratching your heads. God hardened his heart? Now, let's understand something. Hardening one's heart is an activity that we do, that we do to ourselves, as we're going to see. But it says God hardened his heart. Now, we're going to see what that means. The first thing we got to acknowledge is God is not the author of sin, of evil. That's what 1 John 1, 5 says. God is light in him there's no darkness. God never tempts anybody to sin. And God never makes anyone do something that's contrary to his revealed will. So that's Exodus 4.21. Turn over to Exodus 8. Look at verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then look at verse 32 of Exodus 8. Now notice what it says in verse 32. Pharaoh hardened his heart. This time, he did not let the people go. Turn over to Exodus 9, verse 12. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. But then look at Exodus 9, 34 and 35. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hell and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. What did, what did God speak to Moses? I'm going to harden his heart. But then it says here, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And how are we to understand this? Which is it? God hardening his heart or we hardening our heart? Well, it's both. It's both. Now, remember, God is not the author of evil. And when it says, that God hardened his heart. This is what it means. To be consistent with the passages where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, here's what happens. God removes all restraints from the wicked. And when he removes restraints, then he leaves them to their own evil desires. And so that, you know, some have said, it's amazing because when we understand unbelievers are in bondage to sin, that all unbelievers aren't mass murderers, serial killers. But they could be. 
there is a restraint that God exercises even among the heathen. And so what, what, what he does, he turns people over, and that's what he did to Pharaoh. I'm just going to let Pharaoh harden his own heart. And in hardening his own heart, that's what it means, I harden his heart, meaning I let him harden his heart. You know, in our society, Romans 1, we're actually, you're probably aware of this, in our reprobate culture in the United States at the moment, we are seeing Romans 1 just lived right out amongst us. Because God says to those um, who refuse the clarity of God and his creation and they worship idols, he says, I gave them over to a depraved mind. Men lusting after men, women lusting after women. And he says, this is an abomination. I'm just going to let them do what they want. Is that not what God is doing? I mean, how crazy is it that we are, we are gender confused? Are we really gender confused? Well, that we don't know the difference between male and female? Are you serious? And these some people, they really are thinking that way. Well, what's happened? God has pulled away and has just turned them over to their own, their, their own depravity. So that's what God did to Pharaoh. And that is what God did to the scribes and the Pharisees to whom Jesus is encountering. And he's lived right out among them. Remember there, turn back to John 8. And we see there in verse 19, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. Now these words he spoke in the treasury, he taught them in the temple. No one sees them. Why? Again, it says, because his, his hour had not yet come. Jesus was not going to die until it was the appointed hour. And when it was the appointed hour, Jesus will voluntarily lay his life down. So when they came to arrest him, remember what he said, to you has been given the hour of the power of darkness. It has now arrived. But what we see here, so when he says, in verse 21, I say to them again, I go away and you shall seek me and shall you shall die in your sin where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, I want you to turn just back a few chapters to John 6 and just remind ourselves of what Jesus said in John 6. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So there are some that God the Father gives to God the Son. And we know these has to be the elect of God. Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, 
and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Then verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The father gives some to Jesus and the father draws men to Jesus. But he doesn't draw all men. He doesn't. And he, didn't, he wasn't drawing the scribes and the Pharisees. Now we're going to see, just like back in Exodus, whose fault is that? It's not God's fault. It's their fault. Turn over to Matthew 11. And look at verses 25 through 27. Matthew 11, 25 through 27. Now notice the similarity here with our passage in John 8. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and did reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Right there, the only way that someone can come to Jesus, according to Jesus, is if Jesus says, I have willed to let you come. I have given you a privilege to see something that others don't see. And I'm going to leave others in their sin. But I'm going to reveal myself to some of you. Now look at, turn back to John 8. And you look at verses 21 through 23. He said, therefore, again to them, I go away, you shall seek me and shall die in your sin where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Now, What does it mean? He says, you're going to seek me, but you're not going to find me. You know, this is a tragic pronouncement of Jesus upon the scribes and the Pharisees. Being God, we know from the scriptures, he knew men's hearts. He knew what they were thinking. He knew their motives ahead of time. And 
He could look into the hearts of these scribes and Pharisees and all he could see was darkness, moral darkness. And he knew that they had hardened their heart against him. And um, so when it says, you're going to seek me, but you're not going to find me, basically it means this. On their deathbed, they will have no peace. They will find no comfort of any kind, but only dark despair. There will come a time. You know, one of the uh, stories that you read about the, the Presbyterians in Scotland who were persecuted during the time of Charles II called the Killing Fields, Many a godly preacher and godly members of churches were, were murdered by the Romanists. There was a man in one of their churches whom one of the ministers who was being persecuted, they had excommunicated this man. And he said uh, he didn't think anything of it. But eventually this man was on his deathbed. And here's what it, he relates. He says, when they execute, excommunicated me, I thought nothing of it. Because he liked, he says, it is fun to run with the Romanists, but it's terrible to die with them. This is what he's saying on his deathbed. Then he says, I am now about to go into eternity and perish in my sins. On his deathbed, he still didn't turn. And then says, I'm about to go into a horrible place that they warned me about, but I wouldn't listen. And Jesus is, is saying, he says, there's going to come a time you're going to want to seek me, but it's too late. Remember, he's going to tell another story. I don't know if Jess will get to this one, but he says, there's a time when the door is shut. And when the door is shut, you may want to come in, but you're not going to be able to come in. There is a time, like today is the day of salvation they just talked about. And that's what we need to exercise. So Jesus reaffirmed to them, did I not say to you that you will die in your sins? And when men perish, they will go to an eternal hell. Well, whose fault is it? Now, you see, you're going to see this tension in the scriptures. Because we just read in John 6 and elsewhere, Jesus says, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you. And so some might reason, well, then they may want to come, but you're not going to let them come. Well, it doesn't work that way. Well, that doesn't make sense. Well, it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense to you. It's what the Word of God says. Turn with me over to Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18. And look at verse 23. God is saying to a very disobedient Israel, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? 
declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? I don't want, in one sense, I don't take joy in sending men to hell. You should repent and live. And look at Ezekiel 18, verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. So the answer is, we should... There is a difference in the scriptures between the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. The secret will of God, like is in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret will of God is in the counsels of, uh, of, of the Godhead, decisions that are made. We were chosen from the foundation of the world, the scripture says, in several places. At the same time that we were chosen from the foundation of the world, God sent his son for the purpose that they might believe. Remember, we looked up Matthew 4. Jesus came to those sitting in darkness under the shadow of death. They saw a great light. Now, in seeing the great light, what are you supposed to do when you see the great light? Do what Jesus said there. <laughs> Repent. That's what you're supposed to do. And someone will say again, but I thought you couldn't come unless you were drawn. Yeah, that's right. The revealed will of God says, you are to uh, follow Jesus today. And anyone who ends up in hell can never blame God. It was there, they sent themselves in one sense to destruction. Why? Because they refused to believe. And Jesus, with these scribes and Pharisees, he's, he is going after them hard in this, in this section. Now, When Jesus said there that in verse 23 or 24, I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Now that's a, that's a term that's very uh, full. Remember when God called Moses and Moses says, well, when I go to Egypt, what am I to tell them is your name? Well, tell them, I am that I am has sent you. Tell them I am. God says, I'm the eternal one without beginning, without end. I am. And Jesus says, I am he. And 
You better follow me. And if you don't believe that I am God in the flesh, you will die in your sins. That's why oh, we, we've looked at this passage. We're not going to turn to it again. But in 1 John 2, the, the, the spirit of Antichrist, you know what the spirit of Antichrist is? It's, it's not this man who's raised up, you know, people guessing who it is. The spirit of Antichrist is very clearly set forth in John's epistles. The spirit of Antichrist is everyone there in 1 John 2 that denies that God has come in the flesh. That is the Antichrist spirit. And if you don't believe, and, and the only way a person can believe that Jesus has come in the flesh there in 1 John 2 is that the Holy Spirit has revealed that to us. That's the only way. So Jesus is saying, I am all that I have claimed to be. I'm the one sent by the Father. I am the one who is from above. I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God, equal with the Father in power and glory. I am the one who has life in myself. I am the one who is the light of the world. And unless you don't believe that, you will die in your sins. They still don't get it because look at verse 25. They were saying, who are you? Jesus says, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? What have I been saying to you? It's pretty clear. You ought to know it, but you don't know it. Why don't you don't know it? Because you've hardened your heart. That's why you don't know it. And because you've hardened your heart, you can't go where I am going to be with my father. Look at verse 28. Well, verse 27, they, they didn't realize he was speaking to them about the father of heaven. Jesus says, when you lift up the son of man, verse 28, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So now when it says that when you lift me up, you will know this. What do you mean? That's a term meaning, as he, Jesus said in John 3, when you lift me up, meaning when you crucify me, then you'll know who I really am. And just to give you an idea, turn over to Matthew 27. Look at verse 45 and following. How did they know that when, when Jesus gave up the ghost or the spirit? Matthew 
Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45. So, when Jesus, in his last moments, now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell on the land until the ninth hour. Total darkness. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama thostani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me. And some of those who were standing there when they heard it said, this man is calling out for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him as drink. The rest say, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried up with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now in a moment he yielded up his spirit. What happened? Look at the text. The veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. There was a great earthquake. There was darkness and a great earthquake. And remember also the centurion that was watching him and says, truly, this is the son of God. And after his death and when he was resurrected, verse 52, and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. That must have been an interesting thing. (laughs) And uh, what we see here, remember Jesus said, I always do the will of my Father. He's always with me. Well, there was a time when the Father was not with him. He who had always done the will of the Father, he who had always walked in close communion with the Father. As Isaiah said, he will bear our griefs. And as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, It says, it pleased the Father to crush the Son. You see, the Father, justice had to be rendered. If you break the law of God, then you have to pay the price. And if you and I don't pay the price, then someone someone has to pay the price. It's either going to be ourselves, but God has allowed a substitute. And that substitute is Jesus. This is why, again, when we do evangelism, I still insist that we really haven't sufficiently preached the gospel until we, we make people realize they are sinners because they have violated the law. And because they have violated the law, God is a just God, and he says... It has to be paid. That's what propitiation is. In 1 John 4.10, it is the satisfaction of divine justice. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, 
And he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in him. Remember, Jess was preaching, you got to be clothed with his righteousness. But you got to have a substitute. You got to have that substitute. So when, when, when Jess was preaching that you need to put on those, those wedding garments, that means you got to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And you got to believe that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. And when he paid that penalty, you were forgiven once and for all. And so what we see here is that this is what's necessary. But you're going to know who I really am when you crucify me. And there was another way, let me just say this. There was another way they came to know him. You know, when Jesus was in, in his mock trial before the Sanhedrin, where they brought in false witnesses, bunch of hypocrites because they were trying to trap Jesus. They brought in false witnesses to condemn him. But of course, the, the high priest says, well, just tell us, I adjure you by the living God. Are you the Christ, the son of the living God? And when Jesus says, he was silent up to that point, but then he says, you have said it. Then, then uh, Caiaphas says, well, we have all the evidence right here to kill him. And Jesus said, well, turn to Matthew 26 and see what Jesus said. Verse 64. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you remember when Pilate offered up Jesus to the Jews and let him say, he said, you got Barabbas, a murderer, and you got Jesus, whom Pilate says, I find no fault in this man, but I'm gonna let you decide. And it says the Sanhedrin got enough people to cry out Barabbas. And then, then Pilate washed his hands. He says, I wash my hands means, well, you have said it. And you remember what they said to Pilate? Let this man's blood be on us and our children. You know what they just did? They did exactly what Pharaoh did in the last plague. Because he called down the plague. Because he said, I'm going to kill the firstborn of Israel. And he says, oh no. Moses says, you, you failed to realize you just condemned all the firstborn of Egypt. And so when they cried out for Barabbas, said, oh, we're willing to take that upon themselves. That's exactly what happened. In 70 AD, Jesus came to Jerusalem. Coming on the clouds, by the way, is a term found in the Old Testament used at least four times of God's judgment upon pagans, upon Egypt, upon Babylon, and upon Judah. And he came to them. He says, you'll know who I am 
And in about 40 years, you're going you're gonna to see me in a way that you have never imagined. And that curse you have just called upon yourself and your children. You know how many people died in the siege of Jerusalem? One million. One million. Josephus says he was with the Romans. It was, an, uh, it was a horrific sight. You will see me. And there will come a day when you will know I am he. Not only in 70 AD, but that when you die in your sins because you refuse to believe in me, you're going to regret it in that day. So that was the encounter that Jesus had with them. And we're going to see next week. It said, though, in our text that some believed in him, but we're going to see, did they really believe him in a saving sense? I'm not going to spoil it for you. You've got to come back to next, week, next week's episode. <laughs> and you're going to see, what did they really mean when it says they believed him? Let's pray. Lord, your ways are not our ways. And we marvel at your, your scriptures. Your thoughts are not our thoughts, and your ways are not our ways. And as high as the heavens are above the earth... So are your ways higher than our ways and your thoughts than our thoughts. Many are called, but few are chosen. And yet you have commanded us to believe in Jesus. And if we don't believe, it's our fault. Give us a desire to go out into the highways and byways and summon people to that marriage feast of the Lamb. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.